is the industry that's going to be last to go in the subscription? We always went to like heavy industrial, like cement, right? You know, big things. How do you, how do you subscribe to that? And so the caterpillar, the question was, is it, are you subscribing to a tractor? Right, but we always said, you know, hey, look, the goal is not to look at the product. The goal is to look at what you're trying to do with the product. And so, how do you move to a world where you can just simply pay based on metric tons of earth moved? We used to buy things. Remember that? Hard drives, hit singles, our favorite movies. But for now, at least, the hot trend is subscriptions. Instead of buying hard drives, we subscribe to cloud storage from Amazon, Google, Microsoft, or Dropbox. For music, there's Spotify. For movies, there's Netflix. And it seems a new subscription service is born every minute. They say that during a gold rush, the surest way to strike it rich is to sell picks and shovels. That's what Teen Zuo is doing in this new subscription economy. His company, Zora, is the engine that powers the subscription process for companies like Box, SurveyMonkey, and TripAdvisor. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Apple's podcast app is the most popular way to tune in, but Overcast, Stitcher, Google Play, there are lots of them. Mainly, just subscribe so we can keep this thing going automatically. I talked to Teenzuo about how he founded Zora and grew it into a company that's raised nearly a quarter of a billion dollars and is pushing for more growth, one of the fastest growing software-as-a-service companies out there. He's got some unique ideas about managing people and stepping out on your own. Here's Teenzuo. The roots of the company really come from our previous experiences, me and my co-founder. I was at Salesforce.com. My co-founder was at WebEx. And most people think of Salesforce.com, right, fairly well known at this point as, as a company that disrupted the software industry with a new way of delivering software. Instead of giving it to you on a CD, I'll just deliver it to you over the Internet. We're all used to it today, but at the time it was a revolutionary concept. But, you know, what sometimes gets lost is, is that the alternative business model that Salesforce used, which is to say, you know, you don't have to buy my software. Why don't you just pay as you go, right? Pay every month, pay based on how much you use, how many users. This is a very revolutionary concept, right? And which we call this a subscription-based business model mm-hmm. today. And in 2007, after, you know, being at Salesforce for nine years and, and, and being part of Mark's team and, and, and running that Mark Benioff, um, you know, our question was, gosh, if we can use a subscription-based business model to disrupt our industry, could other companies do the same? Right? And we looked at what Netflix was doing at the time, and this is before video streaming, so they were just Back sending they out were you know, shipping, they were DVDs. shipping DVDs. Yeah. But they were just destroying Blockbuster. Right? And we looked at um, Zipcar at the time, which was fairly early, and, and the idea that Zipcar was going to disrupt uh, GM uh, was a little far-fetched, but we, you know, it was a visit to New York here. Where, where I had a series of meetings, I asked everybody, hey, do you own a car? Of course, you know, New Yorkers you know, live in Manhattan, they don't own cars. But then the next question was, do you have a Zipcar membership? And 80% of them said they did, right? Mm. Because it was so convenient to grab a car and, and, and you know, go out to New Jersey, right? Go, 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 go do some shopping, whatever it is that they needed to do. And so we didn't anticipate, you know, this, again, this is 2007 before Uber. Uh, we didn't anticipate Uber, right? that, that would be a little far-fetched, but we could see that the next iterations of these ideas were going to get better and better, and this idea that you didn't have to own cars was eventually going to become a reality. And so this is where we stepped back and said, you know, gosh, there's a broader shift, if you will, towards subscription services, a subscription economy, so to speak. And we didn't know if it was going to take two years, five years, or 20 years, but we just believed that this idea of, of, of selling a product 
was fundamentally a broken business model. Hmm. And, and when you look at technology, when you look at consumer preferences, when you look at the things that we were able to do at Salesforce by reinventing what we did as a service you subscribe to, those things were, were universal. And so we, who, are your, we, who are your big yeah. customers now? So now, fast forward now, I mean, we, you know, initially, we had a whole block of software as a service companies, companies like Box, companies like Zendesk, all right? But these days, I mean, you know, the Wall Street Journal is a customer, General Motors, Caterpillar, uh, British Gas, and Schneider Electric, and so, so, so the traditional industrial manufacturing companies that have had, you know, over 100 years of shipping product, they're all now moving into the subscription economy as well. And so this is, uh, this is pretty exciting. Caterpillar. Caterpillar. What do what they need to use a subscription model for? How do they? How do they you know, when we used to sit around and we used to talk about, you know, what is the industry that's going to be last to go on the subscriptions? We always went to like heavy industrial, like cement, right? You know, big things. How do you, how do you subscribe to that? And so with Caterpillar, the question was, is it, are you subscribing to a tractor? Right, but we always said, you know, hey, look, the goal is not to look at the product. The goal is to look at what you're trying to do with the product. And so how do you move to a world where you can just simply pay based on metric tons of earth moved? Right, and you don't care about the infrastructure. Well, it turns out that Caterpillar, along with probably every large manufacturing company, has been investing in this thing called IoT, Internet of Things, right? Uh -huh. so, so the way they tell the story is they have two million assets, you know, tractors, engines. They showed us a, tr a picture of a truck that holds 200 vehicles, and, and this a is truck a truck that holds 200, 200 vehicles. vehicles. This is this is, again. This is this is this is like a mining truck, <laughs> and 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 this truck is actually uh, it drives itself. It's an autonomous vehicle that holds 200 cars. Now it's not you know driving down the New Jersey Turnpike, right? It's it's, yeah, it's right. driving a specialized condition, a specialized site. Uh, but they've been investing in, in IoT, and they have two million of these assets, and over about they said a quarter of them, 500,000 of them, are already outfitted with sensors, collecting data, sending it to the internet. And they weren't sure at first what they were going to do with this. And this is the same story of GE's, same story of Schneider Electric. But they realized at some point is, gosh, you know, we can provide the service that the companies, you know, our customers are trying to do much better with these intelligent devices, right, than they could do themselves. And, 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 but this new thing, these things that we're, we're, we're offering are services that people need to subscribe to. So what are these services? I mean, there's, there's safety services. Where, look, we'll outfit everybody on the construction site with an RFID tag that signals where they are. Mm -hmm. And these big industrial equipment will know, where, right, if a person is close by and it'll shut down, right? Uh, these, are, these are predictive maintenance services where, where every hour or every day that these machines go offline is really, really expensive. Mm -hmm. So rather than take, you know, two weeks, you know, after the machine breaks, you're waiting for the parts, you're waiting for the technician. We'll know that, look, this machine is probably going to break in the next 90 days. Let's take a two-hour downtime right now and plan it and service it. Uh, all the way to, you know, th they're talking about, like, this, this is, the technology is all here today. And so this is probably still months or quarters away. But, you know, let's say you want to build a golf course and the land right now looks like this and you want it to be reshaped. Well, they'll send out the aerial drones. They'll do a 3D mapping of the entire site. They'll download all the information into a bunch of CAD tools. They'll send, right, the instructions to, to, to semi-autonomous tractors that are doing precision excavation. And you could just say, well, look, tell me how much this is going to cost. And there's a service that takes care of it all for you. And this is where the world is going. It's, it's all happening. It's all happening pretty fast. How many employees have you got? What can you tell me, you know, sales-wise, how big you are? Yeah, so, so we're still a private company, so we haven't announced sales. But we did say we're over $100 million of revenue, and we're about 850 employees uh, right now. 
All right. That's doubled in the past three years or so? Uh, it's at least doubled yeah. in the last three years, yeah. Yeah. Tell me about you. Sure. So how did you become an entrepreneur? Well, um, you know, I, I don't know that I have this uh, story of a lemonade stand when I was a kid. I actually grew up here in, in, in New York. I grew up uh, in Brooklyn, right across the river. Um, but, you know, my family always had an entrepreneurial spirit. I, I think it comes from being an immigrant family, mm -hmm. right? My, uh, you got here when you were three? I came here when I was three years old. Yeah. Uh, my parents came from uh, Taiwan. And uh, so classic New York City immigrant family story. Uh, and so, 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 you know, we were, we, we, we were called middle class immigrants. Um, but rather than getting a job in a big corporation, my dad used to just do his own thing, open up a few stores, um, okay. sold some real estate, right? And so there's always this entrepreneurial kind of drive inside the company. Um, you know, but, um, and, and I've always been attracted to- What kind of stores did your dad open up? Gosh, uh, what kind of store? Uh, so, so we had a, there's a few, but we had a stationary store on 18th Avenue there in Brooklyn, <laughs> and they sold just knickknacks, toys, you know, greeting cards back in, they were popular. Yeah. And a classic story, me and my brother would have to get up uh, early Saturday morning, Sunday morning at like 5 or 6 a.m. And, and put together the, the, the Sunday paper, right? It was the Sunday Daily News, the Sunday New York Times. They would ship it to you in all these different sections. <laughs> and so, so very much a family business where, you know, as, as, as the kids got roped in as cheap labor right. to work on the family <laughs> business. Yeah. And your mom, um, was she an academic? Did I read that? So they were both academics. Okay. They, 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 they both came here. Uh, they were psychology majors. Ah. But it was um, it was Must have been hard to get psychology. away with anything at home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so, so you, you do feel like you're under a microscope at times. But, but, but they weren't therapists. They were statistical psychologists. Right? So they were, they were doing uh, lots of tests um, in their postdoc program. Mm. And gosh, in, in 1980-81, when, when Reagan came to power, he wound up shutting down a lot of the academic funding, and uh, and their projects got axed. And mm. so this is when they had to go back into the real world, and, and get jobs. Okay. And, and at that point, yeah, my mother decided to um, go back to school, and she got a computer science degree. And why she, computer science? Uh, I think there was a good job market back then in the '80s for computer science, but back then it was all, it wasn't the personal computer today. She got a job working on mainframes for uh, TWA, uh, the airline at the time. Wow. And so I did get to fly free on standby <laughs> as a teenager, which was, uh, which was a lot of fun. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And you also got to be kind of technically inclined by, by your late teenage years, right? Yeah, I think when, 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 because my mother was taking some of these classes, this is at Brick, back in Brooklyn College, um, I wound up taking some summer classes as well. I, they just let me sit in on these classes, and, and, and I found I, I liked it. And so, so, so I was probably on the on, on the borderline. But my first class um, was actually using punch cards and uh, and writing mainframe applications. And probably the only experience I had this was the borderline when a lot of those that era was about to come to an end. But I, that was my one brief exposure to that first generation of computers. And from there, tell me about college. Um, so, so I went to Cornell, uh, Cornell, just, just a few hours upstate here. Yeah. And, um, you know, look, you're, you're, you're a teenager. You're not sure what you want to do with your life, right? Parents have a big, heavy influence. And so, so my dad said, look, just, just, just get an engineering degree. Electrical engineering is probably, you know, 
the easiest path to, 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 to jobs in the future. So I got an electrical engineering degree, but same thing, I found that I, was, I gravitated towards software. I wasn't really a hardware guy, and I liked programming, and I liked, um, turns out I liked building business applications, applications to help companies, small, large, whatever it is, uh, automate, automate, manage their workflow, collect the data they need to do, and, 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 and do, the, do their work. Your parents didn't micromanage your youth put a ton of pressure on you to do you know it was a different generation back then right, right? and so so and, and my parents were probably the opposite of the so-called tiger parents that you hear about these days so my youth was you know after school going to the streets of Brooklyn stickball we lived at a dead-end street right so all the kids would gather in our street and uh, you know there's no cell phones no social media my parents didn't know where I was right as long as I got home in time for dinner Everything was fine, right? So it was going to be more of a, more of that stand by me, type of uh, type of youth. And in a way, I mean, I, I draw a parallel between that and some of the culture of your company. Like you don't feel like you want to be constantly uh, keeping tabs on your employees and evaluating them, and you know. So when it comes to the company, I mean, we we try to adopt a very much a non-hierarchical structure. Right. I mean, you know, apparently org charts do exist somewhere in the company, but 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 I try to ban them. But I try to make sure the company, you know, we don't get caught up in, in hierarchical org charts. Because but we have more of a well, it's not the way that nobody, you know, people want to work. Right. I mean, people want to work for themselves. People want a sense of growth. People want a, a spirit of entrepreneurism right inside the company. And um, and, and, and you, you got to trust the individuals in the job to know what it is they need to do. And, and you got to trust their decision making. How much of that comes from your own roots in Silicon Valley? Because interestingly, you know, I cover Oracle and sure. you know, I've, I've followed Salesforce and whatnot. Uh, I hear some of the same things from Oracle, as crazy as that might sound to, to outsiders, about, yes, it's a big, complicated organization, but it tries not to be too hierarchical in um, the, the influence of people at various levels can have. Did, did you notice things good and bad about the previous places you worked before starting? Well, the I worked at then? Oracle. I worked yeah. there for uh, six years uh -huh. um, um, here in New York. Uh, I would not say Oracle is not a hierarchical <laughs> place. <laughs> so, um, you know, Oracle, every company has a, you know, these, 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 these cultural DNA. Oracle's traditionally has been very much about internal competition. Mm -hmm. I, I think um, you know the CEO there sets things up in in, in, in that way, and so um, you know that's not a, a a a structure that works well for for too many other companies, right? I, I think Oracle's been able to make it work for themselves, but that's not one that I, I certainly would advocate. No fight club for you. No fight clubs internally. <laughs> There's enough fights out there with competition, and with trying to make it in the world. How is Salesforce different? Um, so, so, you know, in many ways, because I was at Oracle and at Salesforce, we're almost a, a third generation of this, but, 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 you know, one of the reasons, I interviewed with Salesforce when it was about, you know, six or seven folks, right, before we had offices, interviewed out of Mark's house, and then there, there's definitely a, um, uh, a pull into that culture, there's some commonality, right, a lot of us in the early stages did, did come out of Oracle. Um, you know, but Mark, Mark is not about internal competition, which is one of the things I liked, right? Mark, Mark is really about uh, alignment, right? So I would say Salesforce tries to retain the aggressiveness 
of Oracle in terms of, of, of growth, in terms of sales, but marry that really with a um, more of an alignment collaborative culture. Mm -hmm. It's probably the best way I would characterize it. And then, you know, Zora after that is... Well, so, so one of the big things that we're trying to do, and it's not like Salesforce did not have a spirit of innovation. We, a lot of the things that the software as a service industry now takes for granted were things that we created inside of Salesforce. Um, you know, but we are also trying to create something new. So if you simplify down the software industry over the last 10, 15 years, right, because of this, 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 this cloud computing trend, it's, it's been really taking known concepts that existed before the cloud and moving it into the cloud. Right, so here's a cloud-based version of PeopleSoft. Here's a cloud-based version of Ariba. Right, here's a cloud-based version of, 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 of Oracle Financials. Um, we're trying to do something different. Right, what we're trying to do is to say, look, gosh, there's this new business model called subscription-based business models, and it's very, very different. In fact, we'll, we'll we'll go on record to say a lot of the concepts they try to teach you in business school are dated. Right, they're all dated in an era where the main goal of a company was to make as many products and get it, you know, sell as many units of a product as possible, and, and the world looks very, very different today, how Netflix runs, how Salesforce runs, right, how Amazon runs is just very, very different. And, um, you know, and our view is the software that products that people use today, these so-called ERP or enterprise resource planning systems that companies use to run themselves are based on that old era. And so we're trying to invent a whole new category of software for these modern businesses. And so there's a, there's a certain amount of software innovation that, that we really need to do, right, in business application that we really need to do. And so there has to be a spirit of innovation. There has to be a spirit of reinvention that permeates every part of our organization. We have to assume that, you know, the playbooks of other companies might not work, hmm. right? And you want to take the best ideas and the experience, but you got to throw it out, take out a clean sheet of paper, and, and reinvent every step of the way. And we try to embed that into our organization. You said that there's this false idea out there that inspiration strikes, a great idea hits, and that's most of the work. And, yeah. um, and you know, from there you just chase the idea and become a gazillionaire. What is the real more common model you found for how people um, end up pursuing a brilliant idea that leads to success? It's, 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 it's iteration. It's iteration over a concept over a long period of time, right? If you look at the movie Social Network and people say, gosh, that's not really Mark Zuckerberg in the movie, that's true. Right. But the essence of that movie was obsession and compulsion and how you, 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 you create a great company from that. I mean, people talk about uh, the iPhone as this amazing invention it certainly is, but there's a video or a story, I think, of Steve Jobs probably 15, 20 years before the iPhone where someone gives him a keyboard and says, can you sign this keyboard? And he, you know, classic Steve Jobs story, he takes a keyboard, he takes out his pen, and he hates his keyboard, and he basically pops off one of the function keys, like the F10 key, and says, this key really shouldn't belong on this keyboard. We don't really need this key. And then he proceeds to pop off the F9 key. In the meantime, the owner of the keyboard is staring in horror as Steve Jobs is demolishing his, his keyboard. And uh, people love telling that story, but, but, but you can just tell that obsession with getting rid of the keyboard over a 20-year period is how you wind up with an iPhone, right? Because who else would have thought about that? It's not like you woke up one day and, 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 and you know, the tree fell off, you know, the apple fell off the tree like Newton, and you're like, you know what? We just need to get rid of the keyboard. It's just he obsessed about it and worked out all the details of, well, how is it going to work 
If it doesn't have a keyboard, what do you have to do about that user interface? What do you have to do about the form factor? Right? What are the implications of this? And, 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 that, and that takes time. And so, so iterating on, under, it's not the, you know, it's, it's like swinging a golf club. You, 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 don't, you don't hit the ball the first time. Anybody that swings a golf club the first time, you, you, know, you rarely hit the ball. <laughs> by the tenth time, maybe you're hitting the ball, right? But it's, you know, by the hundredth time, maybe you've got some consistency. But you've got to do it like a million times before you start getting good at golf. And it's an iteration working through an idea that's really where, 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 where the power lies. Is that how it works with the skills necessary for leadership too? What's, what's the golf ball that took you 100 tries to learn how to hit consistently? Um, so, so, so how do you set up a, 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 a cadence in, 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 in learning is, is one of the key things. And so um, as a leader, how do I, f I force myself to take out a blank sheet of paper and, and, and redefine my job? Um, several times a year, hmm. right? Uh, if I could do it every day, I would do it every day. It'd probably drive everybody crazy. It'd probably drive me crazy. So these days, I try to redefine my job about once a year, right? And um, but but redefine your job. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you a quick story. So so you know when we were about 150, 200 people. Um, what is this? Five years ago? It's about five years ago. Uh -huh. We started hearing. A, I, I started hearing in the management started, a lot of noise in the organization. Right, uh, in terms of gosh, uh, our culture, right, is 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 is, is really suffering. Uh, leadership doesn't know what's going on. The left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. Right, you know, we don't really have any values. Right, and you dig into this thing, and and and, and you do a values exercise. It's like, well, everybody kind of agrees on what the values are. In fact, the values always boil down to the things that you all agreed upon. And 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 so what I realized was that the company was scaling beyond the way I was leading. Right? And it really required me to look in the mirror and realize the root, a lot of the issues in the company uh, was myself. It's really easy for everyone to externalize this and, 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 and blame things that you see outside. But once you're able to connect it back to, gosh, I mean, this is really related to how I lead, um, that, 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 that you know, the journey back can, can, can start. And so I, I did this thing eventually where I took out a clean sheet of paper and I said, look, I'm just doing too many things. And, 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 and yesterday in the company, every project that I'm in personally involved in gets done. And today, every project I personally get involved in is a disaster. So something <laughs> happened, right? There's just not enough time in the day for me to actually get involved with things. I've got to let go. I've got to let people do what they need to do. And so I said, look, how do I invent my job, reinvent my job so I'm doing the minimal set of things possible? So I made a list of everything I did, and I tried to chop it off and chop it off. And my goal was to get it down to one thing. I got it down to about four. Um, and you know, you know it what was the four were? Um, so so it was it was I had to be the lead evangelist, right? It was something that is hard for me to 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 push off. Uh, I said I had to lead and align the organization through the top two layers of management. Uh, it was very specific, and um, I said I didn't want the word manage in there, so hmm. I had to find out how to get the organization to be self-managing, but I needed to lead and align. Those are the two things I really need to do, and I need to do this across the top two layers of management underneath, uh, you know, underneath me, my, my top two layers of managers. Sounds a little wonky. What's the difference between leading and aligning versus managing? Uh, I do not know what people are doing day to day. I am not, you know, sitting down with them, understanding what they're doing on a day to day basis, helping them through obstacles, mm -hmm. right? And so I have to set a direction, 
And I have to make sure everybody's aligned to the direction, but I do not own how we get to that place, All right? And I'm there to help. I can be part of the team that helps, but, but, but the team has to, the organization has to figure it out. Huh. Um, and, and so those are the two things. I, I think at the time, we did not have a head of HR, so I had to be the chief people officer. But that was something, you know, I immediately said, well, gosh, it's time to go hire an HR leader. And, and the fourth thing was, um, uh, this is related to a software product. I, I was still the chief functional architect, is the words I used at the time, right? I, I was still trying to make sure how the product fits together. And that was one of the things I had to make sure I removed myself from as well. Hmm. And so, so, so to really get it down. And, and, and now, you know, I, I would say uh, I'm down to two things. Uh, and, and, you know, you never quite get it down to zero, but that mindset of trying to get it down to zero is, is, is where the forcing function that forces me to reinvent. So you don't know what people are doing day to day. You set a direction, make sure people are aligned along it. I guess you know when you're supposed to hit certain checkpoints, though. So it's like if, if the runners in your team don't show up at the checkpoint at the given time, you know that something went wrong. So I'm not I'm not a I'm not a negligent leader. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so 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 um, so the big question is, how do you get a group of people, all channeling the same direction, right? And 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 you know, if you simplify it down, look, capitalism versus communism, right? You can get political like that, but 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 command and control, centralized uh, structures ultimately break down. It's just, it's just too big. The centralized control has, has no idea. And so you need market forces guided by some kind of regulation that guides everybody in the same direction. Hmm. How do you create that for your organization? And so we actually have a structure that we said, look, if, what is the minimal set of things that if everybody agrees to these things and everybody understands these things, then we can work out right, all the issues that come up in, you know, as you're running a company on a day-to-day -day basis. And so, so, so you know, we had to make sure that we all have a common vision, so we're all seeing the same future. We all have a clear visualization of the future that we want to create, right? We call that our vision, and we have a word for it, a phrase for it. We call it the world subscribed, right? It's we want to create a world that's run by a subscription economy. Uh, then it gets harder, right? And it probably took us a few days to just come up with that. Um, well. A mission is what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis to get to that vision, right? It's, 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 it's the most tight definition of mission that I've heard. And here's a trick. You can only pick one thing, right? And you have to do that thing over and over again. So you have to define the mission in a way that you're doing it over and over and over again. And this is where the iteration and the learning comes in. And so, so again, this took like six months, but, but, but and it sounds funny when I, when I say it now because it sounds so obvious, but, but, but the mission is we have to help companies be successful in the subscription economy. Right? And that's something that guides every single employee. And then it's like, okay, well, gosh, what are the minimal set of systems, mental frameworks, if you will, that you need? Mm -hmm. And so the first is, well, how do we operate as an organization? And the first step is, well, look, let's just draw out the org charts, or let's just draw out the classic you know, functions of a company, marketing, sales. And we said, look, we don't want to think of it that way, right? Because functions change, org charts change. And so we broke down our company into what we call eight subsystems. Right. So the, if the company is a system, there's eight subsystems. There's a part of the company that focuses on how do we engage in the marketplace and generate pipelines, right? generate companies that want to engage with us. How do, we, how do we acquire them as a customer? How do we deploy our software? How do we keep them happy as they're using our software, the running subsystem? How do we expand? How do we build product? 
how do we you know manage our people, right? And then how do we how do we allocate our resources, our money? And we call this Padre PPM, and 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 we created this five or six years ago. And once everybody understands that, they can see it. They can see where they fit in the company. The other thing is because it transcends org charts, we can say, gosh, you know, the part of the company that we really want to work with, work on right now as a management team, is say the deploy subsystem. And we don't say, well, gosh, you know, you're the functional leader. That's your problem. No, no, this is all our problems. And it turns out that, that, that the seeds of success in the deployment subsystem permeates all parts of the company. It, 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 how you build a product affects it, what type of customers you go chase after, how you talk about yourself in the marketplace, the people that you hire. So everybody's got to engage in, in how to you know, really, really improve that part of, of, of the company. And so, so this is how we think about ourselves. And we have a few other things. We have a whole formula of how we make customers successful that we call the nine keys. That's a mental concept that we had to create and train everybody on. But if you have all these tools in your head, then we go out and say, just you know, figure it out, right? These are the guiding principles that, 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 that direct us all. What do you do with that really talented employee who's just used to affirmation, to getting tons of feedback about, yeah, this is great, yeah. this is fantastic. It's just a millennial conversation, yeah. <laughs> Well, so, so there's actually a fourth component of our mental model that says what we all need is feedback, right? And so, so, so this, this is a, a structure that, that um, um, this consultant, Derek Cabrera, actually introduced to us, but, 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 but he described a, described a restaurant, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, if you ever watch a movie like Ratatouille or you walk into the kitchen restaurant, it looks like mad chaos. It's Jack Dorsey's favorite right. movie. Ratatouille. Ratatouille. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, it's either that or Kung Fu Panda. But but uh, <laughs> but but you know, but it's 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 it feels like it's mass chaos in a restaurant. But it all works. It all works because you know they have a common vision, right? We want to be the best Italian restaurant, right, on the Upper East Side, whatever it happens to be. We have a mission which is easy to define, right? Where we serve food, we can test it. There's a mission moment when we, you know, when the customer takes that first bite, everything's got to come together. The ambiance. You know, the length of time they waited, the heat of the food, the taste, everything's got to come together and you can test, did we accomplish the mission or not? Where do we, where do we fall short, right? But then you also need feedback. There's a system and so, you know, there's all these stations, a cutting station, and I don't know how it works, right? <laughs> but there's there actually a system in place where you just need to understand your part of the system. And then, and then there's constant feedback, right? And there's constant feedback and that feedback is really, really important. And so, you know, and so as in a company setting, it all comes down to what are the metrics Right? And what are the data that you give to people so they know? They know, am I on track or not? Mm -hmm. right? and, and, and a lot of the setup of the system is to uncover those things so that people are armed with the data they need to know. Right? And so feedback is, is, is important. And, um, you know, and pe people laugh about the, the millennials and, and, and how they want constant feedback. But look, uh, they're used to it. Right? When, 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 when there's a reason why, you know, you post something on Instagram, you get a bunch of likes, and, and, and this is how the system self-adjusts. This is how you know whether you're on track or not. And, and, and you know, what I find is, is, is often what the millennials want is the natural state of things that perhaps, you know, us in the older generation just, 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 just got used to not having. So your millennials in your company, they've, they've latched onto that? Um, so, so probably half our company these days is millennials, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of an unavoid unavoidable <laughs> trend, right? Um, but, but the question is, is for us is, is how do we give them access? I, I'm an angel investor sometimes, and we invest, I invest in this company, 
Uh, we'll see, you know, interesting idea that says when you come out of a meeting, everybody in the meeting gets a little text message or a Slack, you know, a chatbot on Slack that says, well, what do you think of the meeting? Like one to five stars or one to five hearts or whatever it happens to be. And then here's a little text box as to what you thought of the meeting. And, and so, so the millennials love it. I mean, they come out of this meeting and, and, you know, they get all this information. This is what they want. Well, how do I know? How do I know how the meeting went? I know really? when, when, yeah, when, when I post a photo. I feel like it was a meeting. Like what? Well, but they're learning. <laughs> okay. You know, these, these, these could be 22, 24 years. I mean, imagine if you remember, you know, your first job at a college. Right. You're just bumbling along, right? You don't know um, whether you're doing well or not. Eventually someone not. sits down with you and, and, and maybe, if you're lucky, gives you some, some, some feedback. Or a swift kick, yeah. Or a swift kick, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, yeah, but, they, you know, wouldn't you rather get that swift kick? In, 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 in a little summary about your meeting that says, you know, look, six out of the ten people thought it was a big waste of time. Well, good. Now I know. Huh. Right? Now I know and now, now, now I can course correct. Now I can learn. Yeah. Like you've Instagrammed the meeting. You Instagrammed the meeting. That's exactly right. That's interesting. What's the company called? Uh, the company? Yeah. The company's called Career Lark. Okay. Huh. So where are we headed? Um, if you look at the skills that young people are going to need to either succeed at your company, to create whatever type of company uh, is going to be required of the next wave of disruption we've got coming down the road. What do you think that is? Well, you, you read a lot of stuff about you know, robots, artificial intelligence, and all that kind of stuff, right? And, 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 and once you sort of clear through the clutter, a lot of it comes down to the same place, right? This, this avoids sort of the Elon Musk, robots going to take over, right? Skynet thing. Um, at the end of the day, these are all tools, right? And, and with every successive introduction of a massive tool, you know, people adapt. People adapt and they learn how to use the tool. And, and so, so it's no difference whether it's a hammer, it's a car, it's a steam, you know, steam, steam engine. And, and so the question is, if we are going to have all these smart devices as tools in our disposal, who are going to be able to master these tools, right? So when software comes out, the programmer is able to master these tools, you know, are, are able to have a greater impact on, 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 on the world. And so the question has to be, how, how, can, how can the new generation, right, and we can even go to, to Generation Z, right, the next generation is where a lot of this stuff is going to hit. And, and I've got an 80-year-old daughter, so I certainly think about this quite a bit. Um, you know, what are the tools that they need? I mean, what are the skills that they need to be able to use this new class of smart tools? And so I just watch. I mean, I watch how my, you know, my daughter interacts with the Amazon Echo, right? I, um, I watch how she interacts with, with you know, smart toys, mm -hmm. right? And, and it's all about you know, combining different things, right? You know, doing things that, that, and taking these leaps that you know, AI engines or, 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 you know, or bots are, are unable to do, right? So there's something about creativity. There's something about thinking out of the box. There's something about connecting people on a social basis, right? That still winds up being really, really important that you leverage with the tools that you have. Yeah, I've got a six, almost seven-year-old and a nine-year-old too. And we're not terribly focused on technology at home, which is kind of weird because I've covered technology for a long right. time. And yes, they have screen time and whatnot, but Really, I like books and Legos and hands-on yeah. time and yeah. just kind of opportunities to make up a story and tell it. Yeah. So, 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 so my daughter loves books, 
Um, this summer we sent her to uh, the Joffrey School here in summer camp because she mm -hmm. loves musical theater. Mm -hmm. So something about self-expression, all right? Something about connecting with other folks, all right? Something about creativity, something about storytelling, all right? These things are still really, really important. Yeah, I guess it's going to take AI probably a while to create a Pixar movie. That's right. Right. Or, or what's going to happen is, 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 you know, if AI starts creating good movies, humans will take it to the next level, right? And can we imagine what the next level is? Probably not yet, but we'll know when we see it. Because some really talented, smart people can create really mediocre movies. That's right. There's, there's something in the process in. Um, the way different people and ideas come together and blending it that, that makes something great. I, I don't know if computers are going to be able to crunch a bunch of numbers and you know tell the difference between the good dinosaur and Ratatouille. That's right. right? That's right. There's still some, some spark. All right. Well, team, thanks. Sure. Absolutely. Enjoy being here. My thanks to Teens Woe. I'm John Ford from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Please do leave a review if you enjoy this. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X dot com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Ford, on Facebook and Twitter. On all those platforms, you'll get video from some of these interviews. And you can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There, I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox or go to Facebook and search for John Fort, and you can figure out what to do from there. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortknox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.